a lot of these House members on the Democratic side are looking around and saying, I'd rather be a mayor, I'd rather be a senator, I'd rather do these other jobs because being in the House is such a waste of my time. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Ben Landy. It's Friday, November 24th. Today, I'm joined by Abby Livingston to talk about the ongoing fallout from last month's House Speaker race chaos, how it's impacting Republican fundraising, and why we're seeing a surge in Democratic retirements. Plus, Abby's thoughts on the 11th hour surge for Nikki Haley and whether she can seize the momentum to have a chance against Trump in the primary early next year. We'll talk about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Happy Friday, everybody. I'm Ben Landy filling in for Peter, who is presumably still in a food coma uh, somewhere south of Los Angeles. But I'm very excited to be here with my favorite Capitol Hill reporter, Abby Livingston. Abby, we are uh, we're actually recording this just before Thanksgiving, break the fourth wall a little bit. But um, where are you right now? What are your plans? I am in the great state of Texas, and, and my crystal ball says there will be lots of turkey uh, coming. So I think it's fairly accurate to say I'll be consuming turkey in the next 48 hours. How about you, Ben? Uh, I'm good. Um, I'm just here in New York with uh, with my wife. We're doing something small this year, but looking forward to it and, and hope that all of our listeners who are listening to this on Friday had a great holiday. But Abby, before we get into all that, I, I, um, I was kind of curious your reaction um, to everything that's been going on with Nikki Haley. You know, Peter filed this piece on Monday about how there's this growing sentiment with donors and more establishment-minded Republicans that she's probably now the last best alternative bet to Trump, given that DeSantis has sort of flamed out. Uh, he's sort of totally failed to catch on with voters. And so, you know, there's kind of this feeling that he's had his shot and now let's try it again with Haley once more before resigning the party to another Trump campaign and potentially a pretty unhinged and dangerous Trump presidency. What do you make of this sort of newfound excitement about her candidacy? Do you think there's anything there? Do Republicans you talk to think this is all kind of a, a lark? I just don't see any scenario where Trump is not the nominee. And that's just the reality and it, it, of what we're seeing in the field and the polling and everything else. Now, I could be eating my words in three months. I've been proven wrong many times. But the instincts that, you know, political junkies have is that this is not going to be a successful ouster of Trump in the Republican primary. That said, 
over the course of my career, I've covered a lot of races, whether they're congressional or presidential. And so like think back to John McCain in 2000 against George W. Bush. He didn't win the nomination. But suddenly John McCain's came out of that race even as a loser with his stock up. And you can see that in congressional races and Senate races. And, you know, you could argue Beto O'Rourke had that sort of momentum, even though he lost the 2018 Senate race in Texas. And then suddenly he's running for president and a credible candidate. And so I, I think she is the rare person who will probably come out of this with her stock up and, you know, in a pretty good position in a post-Trump Republican Party if things return back to some sense of historical, traditional Republican normalcy. But I don't know if that happens. But I do think her stock is up, and I think she'll be in a really good position to run in the future. And I think she's proven to be a really thoughtful, talented candidate in a way that the other people on the stage did not. And I, you know, I would just also say she's standing out as an exceptional candidate, but we must remember that there are very talented Republicans who did not run this time because they knew or they assumed Trump would win. So if she does run again, she would have a fiercer, you know, a much tougher competition field. Yeah, I've definitely been impressed with her performance on the stage. She's had three really good debates so far. And, you know, I was texting with Peter before he filed this latest column on Haley, which, by the way, you listeners should go out and read if you get a chance. It's it's really smart. But I basically texted him. I said, you know, I don't totally share her politics, but she's the one candidate I've seen up there who I could imagine voting for, even if I disagree with a lot of her policies. But that's basically the only data point you need to know that she's probably completely unelectable. <laughs> I mean, the way she speaks about abortion reminds yeah. me of Bill Clinton in 1996. It's, it's a very empathetic I can see the world from both sides where that debate has ended and that ended years ago of where it's just zero sum. And so it is just sort of startling almost to hear a politician try to, you know, I I guess both sides the issue, but, you know, acknowledge that, you know, there are relevant arguments on each side, you know, but that's to say she's still pro-life. But uh, yeah, I absolutely agree with you. Yeah. And by the way, it's sort of funny. It's really the one thing where her and Trump are actually a little bit similar. They are the two Republicans running who seem to acknowledge in various ways that abortion is sort of a a loser of an issue for Republicans in this cycle. But Abby, I want to ask you about what's going on in Congress. Um, There's been big news this week in terms of these fundraising numbers that have come out from the National Republican and National Democratic campaign committees. I think we were all expecting the GOP number to be pretty bad after this absolutely chaotic and embarrassing speaker race shit show that's just consumed months now. But how were the numbers in reality? What, what did you take away from those? So these two House campaign committees, which are member run, the, the DCCC and then the NRCC, and the acronyms are kind of irrelevant, but um, the DCCC had a great month. They raised about $8 million. They've had a consistently good run month after month. The NRCC could have had a catastrophic month. They raised $5 million, which is still $3 million less than the DCCC. So the Republicans were lagging. I was anticipating just a completely catastrophic fundraising month, but I did sort of get some smoke signals after the numbers came in. So that this is October, but the campaign finance reports are not filed until the 20th of the month after. And so I did kind of get some smoke signals of like, cool your jets. It wasn't as bad as we thought it might be. And then on top of that, Republicans will probably have a pretty good November. There is a lot of low-hanging fruit that the new speaker, Mike Johnson, has in asking for money from donors. So it could be sort of a, a quick burst. But of all the sort of 
telltale signs of Republicans doing harm to themselves politically from October. We're not seeing it. They still held on to some recruits early in the month. The retirements are starting to happen, but they haven't come as, honestly, they're starting to be more Democratic, which I think we'll get to. And polling, an NBC poll over the last week showed that Republicans and Democrats on, if you compare, who would you rather have in control of Congress are in a statistical dead heat, just like they were the last time they polled this question in September. So I think part of it is there's probably a sense in the American public that congressional crazy is built in now into how people respond to polling. But this was an utterly chaotic month, but they seem to be coming out of it in relatively good shape. Yeah, I was also surprised that the Republican number wasn't worse, even if the Democratic number was way, way better. I mean, do you think the Republican fundraising was hurt just because lawmakers were distracted with everything that was going on in Washington? They didn't have time to be out there fundraising? Or was it the donors were actually responding to the chaos and the embarrassment of everything that was going on, that they weren't willing to part with their money? Asking for money is a dance. It's almost like dating or any other sort of persuasion. And I'm not even sure if, I mean, first of all, the leaders were consumed with their own leadership races. So instead of working the phones for donors, they're counting votes. So there's just sort of the energies being spent in a different direction. But on top of that, my sense at the time was they didn't even want to make the ask of donors. It's like, how do you ask donors for money if Congress isn't even functional or able to pass any laws or, you know, a donor gives money in order to exert influence. And if nothing's being done, you have nothing to influence. So, and that's, again, why I think November might be a pretty good month for House Republicans, because they've got these built in asks or built up asks that they haven't gotten to yet. So that's sort of my sense. All right, Abby, let's take a quick break. And when we get back, I want to ask you about some of the other speaker chaos fallout. Okay, we're back with Abby Livingston. Abby, you've been doing a lot of reporting on all the congressional retirements that are being announced in the House. What is the body count up to? And, and, and who is looking worse in all this? Is it the Republicans or the Democrats? So we're about 30 and in the House. Is that worse than you'd usually expect from this point in the cycle? I, I was talking with a senior member this morning about it, and this person pushed back. They said, you know, these are clustered, that they're front-loaded, and it may not be that bad. And it, this was a Democrat. I don't agree with that. I think there could be more coming. Retirement season tends to start in August, especially if there's a sense of which way the wind is blowing politically, which we have not had. Um, so they were delayed, delayed, delayed. And then they started dropping as soon as the speaker chaos happened. The Democrats, I, I off the top of my head, I think it's 20 Democrats and 10 Republicans. It may tick up one number, one more Democrat. And I caveated earlier this week in my column about, to be clear, a lot of these Democrats are running for higher office. These are stars from 2018. This is a sign of a healthy party. But I also think it's worth thinking about that a lot of these House members on the Democratic side are looking around and saying, I'd rather be a mayor. I'd rather be a senator. I'd rather do these other jobs because being in the House is so such a waste of my time. It is such a zoo. And so I think it's still a little too early to tell. But we could actually be seeing, whereas in October, a lot of Republican sources of mine were worried about mass Republican retirements because they're sick of all the crazy in their party. It may actually be influencing Democrats more, saying, I don't want to be a part of this, even if it is kind of feeding into the Republican 
beast. And I just think it's also really important to remember every time an older member retires, someone who's really mastered their policy, has learned how the system works, they're often replaced by a very young person, which is a good thing. All we've been talking about all year is the gerontocracy. But also they tend to be more rambunctious and don't really care about the mores and traditions of the capital. And so we may see more of a generational divide in the Democratic Party where these uh, retirements are happening. And on top of that, I think we're at about six Californians, California Democrats retiring. And so it is just a very interesting geographical, sociological thing that's happening. But there are probably more coming. That's really interesting that the split between the number of Republicans leaving and the number of Democrats and and your explanation makes total sense that a lot of these people on the Democratic side, they're seeking higher office. But I was going to ask you how many of these retirements in general you attribute to the frustration surrounding the speaker race and, and also just like how unpleasant and undignified politics has become. I mean, the House has always been a little bit degenerate compared to the Senate, but it does seem like the last few years and the last few months in particular, the lower chamber has really transformed into this sort of Jerry Springer parody of itself. I mean, it's really, it seems like an unpleasant place to work. And I don't know why ambitious people would want to be there unless they saw it as a stepping stone to something else. So some of these are, so there is a, there's a congressman named Dan Kildee in Michigan who's stepping down or, you know, retiring. And he, he had cancer and it made him reevaluate his life. And there's isolated incidents like that. But absolutely, I mean, I don't want to pity these people. They make a lot more money than most Americans. Um, they have fancy jobs. They have full staff. But they do commute back and forth home. And so they only spend, you know, a few days with their families who are based in the home district. Because if your family lives in Washington, you've sold out and you're no longer part of the community. And that is sure to be in a television ad. So they they live apart from their family. You know, they schedule their lives around, you know, how do I get to my kid's soccer game on Saturday morning and that kind of thing. I mean, they're still normal people. And so they're sitting there in October and the whole chamber is in pure chaos and they cannot get home to their family. They cannot get home to their spouse, family plans that they had, you know, their kids national honor society thing or whatever. I'm just making that up. They don't get, they had, they said they were going to come and then they suddenly can't because there is not a speaker of the house. It has been described to me by people inside the house as a sad, frustrating place. But then there's also just one other layer. It's looking from local press reports that a congresswoman from California named Anna Eshoo is on the verge of retiring. And that is just an interesting one because that is a sign of generational change. She has been widely described to me as Nancy Pelosi's best friend in Congress. This is not Congress friends like we like to pass bipartisan legislation um, and we, you know, go do Congress things together. They're true friends. So I think it's like there's probably some residual Pelosi allies who are kind of going, okay, well, it's maybe time for me to step back too. All right, Abby, last question for you before I let you go. What are all of these retirements actually going to do to the potential 2024 congressional map. There's there's a lot of anxiety and speculation surrounding who is going to control Congress come January 2025. What is your sense of how all these retirements play into that calculus? Most of these are in safe seats in both parties. So they will likely be replaced by someone uh, younger and probably more progressive or more conservative, depending on the seat, than the current occupant. There are a couple of exceptions. One of them is Dan, well, what's real? So Dan Kildee is one of those seats in Michigan, who I mentioned before. That is a fiercely competitive seat, and people started lining up in both parties to run for that seat. Um, but the the real consequential issue here are 
the seats of the the big stars from the Democratic 2018 class, Abigail Spanberger in Virginia, Alyssa Slocken of Michigan, and there's one more, oh, Katie Porter in Orange County. These are very competitive seats. They are represented by star Democrats who raise piles of money and know their districts and know how to speak to the constituents and everybody knows their name. And now the Democrats are going to have to you know, whoever their nominee is in each of these seats, they're going to have to spend a lot of money making sure voters know who they are. It is something that the NRCC is delighted about. Um, and it will just mean Democrats have to work extra hard. But we will see where they go. There will probably be more retirements through the holidays into early January. And so it may shake out where Republicans have open seats along those lines, too. And it all kind of comes out in the wash. But right now, I would say the retirement rush has hurt Democrats more. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see what happens. Okay, Abby Livingston, thanks as always. I'll see you back in the office next week. I'm excited to be back in New York City. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you on Monday. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.